Elementary school is foundational. It's where we learn the basics that we will use throughout the rest of our lives. A, B, C are not just letters of the alphabet, but they're the building blocks of words, sentences, and become the words of language, ideas, and dreams. One, two, three are not just numbers, but they're the building blocks of equations and scientific formulas that we can know more about the world and figure things out. You also learn cursive, so that once you graduate, you can forget it. But one foundational lesson that, that I learned, I learned in Miss Chastain's first grade class. See, that year our class traveled to all of the different emergency services in our county. We first went to the fire station. They rolled out that big, shiny red truck, out jumped the firefighters in their suits. They take it off and they explain everything about what they do, how they fight fires. And then the dog walks out and we're all more interested in the dog than we were about anything else they talked about that day. We also went to see an EMT and we learned about ambulances and how medicine and how they save lives, but we were more interested in them running that siren. But the, probably the thing that made the most impact on me was when we visited the police station. See, that was the, the only uh, field trip that we took that really stuck with me and really had a forming moment for me because I remember it very specifically being locked up. You see, the police chief, he invited me into the cell and he closed the door, metal slamming against metal. Chills kind of went down my spine as he turned the key, and I realized that I was separated. I was cut off from my friends and my family and the rest of the world, and I was trapped in there. And you see, that's the point of prisons. We put people in there to keep them separated, to keep them removed from society that they can no longer be a danger to the people and the rest of the community. And I knew right there in that moment that I didn't want to go to prison and that I didn't want to associate with anyone that did. You see, to my childhood self, that's where they kept murderers. That's where they kept thieves. That's where they kept crooks. And I bet some of you have had some of those similar thoughts. Society tells us that, that prison is the place where people go who can't follow the rules. The place where people go who disrupt society. The ones who can't fall in line. Prison is supposed to be a deterrent to keep people walking that straight and narrow. But when people do go to prison, it's supposed to be reforming so that they fall back in line with the beliefs and values of the community and society at large. In other words, the message of prison is that if you don't fall in line, you will be removed. So when we come to a text like Hebrews 13.3, I feel a little tension. And I want to push back against it. In fact, I want to bring it up and read it all together. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. How does that hit you? When I read that, I'm caught off guard. And I'm a little hesitant to want to remember those who are in prison, because prison is the place for criminals. Prison is the place for deviants. Why then would the writer of Hebrews tell us to remember those who are in prison? Because we're supposed to remember people to which we belong. He's writing about remembering those who are Christians in prison. See, the group of Christians that the author of Hebrews is writing belong to a church that is considered deviant and different and out of touch with the rest of society. And where do those kind of people belong? Separated. Removed. 
apart. You see, Christians have a different identity, a different calling, and a different Lord, and therefore are living a different life. And for these Hebrew Christians, their life was not approved. In the first few years of following Christ, they were on fire for the Lord. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened and you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see, in the beginning, this this church, this community lived out their calling and they lived out their identity, but slowly the storm of countercultural living began to take a toll on them. They began to question. They began to doubt their calling and their way of life and they began to slip back into that old way. Prison and persecution were having their desired effect because prison life was bad. You see, prisons in those days had problems of overcrowding. You remember Paul and his lengthy stay in a Roman prison, almost two years worth awaiting his trial. Prisons were overcrowded. It wasn't just like there was one or two people sharing a cell. Ancient writers will say that prisoners longed to even have just one single place to lay down and stretch out to fall asleep. They rarely slept at night. Not only that, they lacked the bare necessities that were essential for daily life. Prison was dark. Rarely did they see the light of day. Their sustenance and their daily rations were a piece of bread and maybe a little water. And often just that little bit was held back as a punishment for something that they did while in prison. You see, these prisoners suffered from a lack of sleep, a lack of sun, and a lack of sustenance. And there was no human services to step in and say, something needs to be done about this. There were no prisoner rights. No one cared about these deviants and outcasts from society because they deserved it. If the Christians didn't step in, who would? In addition to prison life being so hard and difficult, caring for those in prison was also hard. You see, it wasn't just a matter of walking into a prison, signing your name on the intake sheet, and then going back and caring for those that you loved. No, you see, walking into a prison was painting a bullseye on your back and saying, I also belong to this group, sign me up for discrimination, and possibly a prison sentence as well. You see, this was a mass invitation to discrimination. It was opening themselves up to the shame of the society and the community at large. It's no wonder that persecution and prison began to work. So the writer of Hebrews knows this. And he's calling them back to a life that was different. A life that they, where they remember those who are in prison. Remember those who are being mistreated because they are a part of the same body with the same calling. They are a part of the same family. Earlier in chapter 11, he refers back to Moses. He says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughters. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ of greater value than all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his greater reward. You see, when Moses was given that knowledge that he was a part of a different people to whom he originally didn't belong, he didn't just think about them and say, oh, I hope that they're doing okay. 
He didn't just pray for them and hope that their situation got better. No, he stepped down out of his royal seat of privilege and said, I belong to you. I'm going to come alongside you and join you in your suffering because I belong with you. And Christians belong to one another. The Christian journey is not a solo trek, but a group journey when on our way of life, when it conflicts with the world, that we got each other's backs. That we surround each other in love. You see, the world doesn't always approve of our message or our way of life, and sometimes we'll say that we need to be separated from society, that we need to get back on their straight and narrow, and at those times we need the community to which we belong to stand up and say, I've got your back. This is not an alien individual, but an alien church called to support and love one another through anything. In other words, being an alien is costly. Really living out the teachings of Jesus is costly. And in the world of Hebrews, it could land you in prison. And being an alien today is still costly. In other areas of the world, Christians are still mistreated and marginalized. This map from the Voice of Martyrs shows the large number of countries where, which are hostile towards Christians. Each country with a dot on it has a bad track record when it comes to the treatment of Christians. Around the world today, Christians still face pain and prison And living as an alien is costly, even in this country today. Sometimes that pain isn't as apparent to us because there are still some areas of common ground between our culture and our faith. Many Americans, even if they aren't Christians, still appreciate certain things that are rooted in the Christian faith, like caring for the poor and loving our neighbors and prayer. So there are areas in our life where we feel no friction at all between our faith and our culture. But there are other things rooted in the Christian faith that stand in great contrast to our culture. Recently, my Sunday school class here at Highland hosted Ron Wade and Tara Albright so that we could learn more about Hope Works. Tara shared her testimony. She grew up in a poor urban section here in Memphis, And it was quite common for her and others growing up to be involved in drugs and in crime. But when she came to Hope Works and a deeper faith in Jesus, she left that behind. But it was very costly because friends in her hood kept trying to pull her back. And eventually she had to cut herself off from them. Following Jesus meant leaving lifelong friends behind. Perhaps some of you have experienced something like that. Robert Cole spent many years preparing newcomers to understand American culture. As part of his work with the University of San Francisco and the U.S. Information Agency, Coles wrote a widely used summary of 13 American values that foreigners needed to better understand in order to better understand us Americans. Most of those values were quite positive, but there were some that stood in contrast to the Christian faith. One he called materialism. He writes this, Americans value and collect more material objects than most people would ever dream of owning and give higher priority to obtaining, maintaining, and protecting their material objects than they do in developing and enjoying interpersonal relationships. Well, it's pretty easy to see how that value 
would create conflict with Christians who are trying to live lives of simplicity and trying to place people above possessions. Another value he called work orientation. He wrote this, such a no-nonsense attitude toward life has created many people who've come to be known as workaholics, who think constantly about their jobs. The workaholic syndrome, in turn, causes Americans to identify themselves wholly with their professions. And you can see how that value would create conflict with Christians who are trying to base their identity in something besides their work. Christian faith still stands in great contrast to things going on in our culture today. And so the question is, how do we find the courage to keep paying that price? Because, for example, Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount teaches that if you're going to follow me, you have to learn to love people. People who are hard to love, people that you might even call your enemies. And so that, that means there are going to be times when your culture points to a person, points to a political party, points to a group of people, points to another country, and says, we need to hate them. We need to reject them. We need to discriminate against them. We need to punish them. And you have to say, I'm sorry, I can't, because I am a follower of Jesus. So where do you get the courage to face that kind of pain? The Hebrew author says it comes by this, by simply creating a community that remembers those who faithfully face pain. Listen once again to his words, remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. The word body should remind us of an image found throughout the New Testament to describe the church. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the church is called the body of Christ. In part, the author is writing here about the power of Christian community. We find courage when we become part of a community that remembers those who faithfully face pain. And that word remember doesn't just mean to mentally recall. It means to act in such a way that it communicates to that other person that they're valued and prized in this community. In Galatians 2.10, Paul says, I was asked to remember the poor. And he's not saying he was just asked to mentally remember, recall poor people exist. He was asked to, to treat poor people in a way that communicated to them that they belong to this community. That's the same word the Hebrew author is using here. We gain courage as we become part of a community that acts in ways that communicate to those facing pain, you're valued, you're prized, you're important to the rest of us. A university once did some research on how long volunteers could keep their feet submerged in a bucket of ice water. And they found that when a companion was allowed into the room, the volunteer was able to endure twice as long as when they were sitting alone. And the researchers concluded the presence of a caring person doubles, doubles the amount of pain you're able to endure. That's what the Hebrew author is saying here. You can bear more pain when you're part of a community filled with people who empathize with you and support you in the midst of it. So here's the challenge. This week, find 
a handful of Christians willing to remember you. If you're facing some conflict between your faith and our culture, find some Christians who are willing to remember you. If you need to take a step of faith this week in following Jesus, and you know that step is going to create some conflict in your family, some tension in your workplace, some difficulty in your life, find a handful of Christians and ask them to remember you. Ask them to remember you by praying with you. Ask them to remember you by speaking some words of encouragement into your life. Ask them to remember you by walking with you through that journey. And in turn, you promise to remember them. We want to close this morning by listening to Taylor Cow. Taylor is an intern at the youth group this summer. He is also a student at the university at, at Lipscomb University in Nashville. And Taylor knows firsthand the pain of following Jesus, but he also knows firsthand the value of being part of a community. Thank you. Is that what my hair looks like? Oh, dear. Um, so in August of 1992, a man, a woman, and two little boys came to America from Vietnam as immigrants, as legal U.S. citizens. And about nine months later, I graced the world. You're welcome. Um, but growing up, so I had my mom, my dad, and my two older brothers. And to the world, we looked like a pretty normal family. We were happy and whatnot. But behind closed doors, things were a lot different. My dad was an alcoholic. He was a smoker. He was a drug addict. I remember when I was younger going with him to go shoot up on heroin. And I remember sitting outside waiting for him for hours. At the age of four and five, I had really no idea what was going on. My, my dad would come home drunk most nights and verbally abuse my mom, my brothers. And I would always go underneath my bed and begin to cry and scream and just ask for someone or something to take this away from me. When I was eight years old, I found out, my family and I found out that my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer. And at the age of eight, I had no idea what cancer really was. I didn't understand what that meant. All I knew was that my dad was gone in the hospital and he was sick. So we would go to the hospital frequently and visit him. But on April 12, 2002, I found out what cancer really was, what it does, and what it means. The night before, we're all at the hospital, my mom and my dad. And my mom's like, hey, go home and spend the night with your grandmother. I'm going to stay here with your dad. I was like, cool. Went home. Spent the night. The next morning, we get a phone call around 9 o'clock. My uncle shakes me. He's like, Taylor, get up. Get up. We got to go. And he's weeping. And I've never seen the man cry in my entire life. And I hear a woman in the background screaming hysterically. It's my grandmother on the phone. She's like, Taylor, get up. Go to the car. We got to go. We got to go to the hospital. So I listen. I get in. I go to the, get to the car. We go to the hospital. We park. And I've been there so many times that I knew where his room was. So I get out, and I start sprinting to his door. I go up the stairs around the corner and I open the door and I see my dad dead for the first time. Now you guys may be thinking, why would I care so much about a guy who verbally abused my family? Yes, to the outside world, my dad was a fiend and an awful man, but to me, he was my best friend. And let me explain. My dad loved me more than anyone ever did. He would pick me up from school every single day, take me to the local gas station and buy me an Icy, which is probably why I have cavities when I was younger. My dad would love me so much more than anyone else in my entire life, and I appreciate it. I looked up to him. My dad was the life of the party. He always lent a hand to people, helped people move, and did all these other stuff, and was so gracious to others. And that's what I strive for in my everyday life. So, yeah, April 12, 2002 really hurt me, and three things happened this day. One, my dad died. 
Two, I met the enemy for the first time because when I got to the door and I opened it, I literally could not make myself go into the room. I fell to the ground. I began to weep and cry. And I felt this pain and hatred and suffering and, and depression come over me. And at eight years old, I really didn't know how to deal with it. So I'm sitting there crying, and the nurses moved me to a room to be by myself so my mom could take care of some things. Take care of some things. And then I'm sitting there in the corner crying. The door opens, and a man walks in. He comes up to me. He's like, hey, are you Taylor? I'm like, yes. He's like, hey, I'm Ronnie. A little background. Ronnie was my brother's youth minister when he was in high school. In fifth grade, my brother had a crush on a girl, and he followed her to VBS and became a Christian through that way. So if you're wondering if VBS actually works, it does. Trust me. Um, so... So my brother, my, Ronnie was there checking up, checking up on my brother, but he stopped by to see me too. And he bought me um, Papa John's pizza, Dr. Pepper, and strawberry ice cream and taught me how to play checkers, which are four of my favorite things in the world right now. Um, so after the funeral and everything, I, I just lived my life. But a small detail I forget to live out, I forgot to um, mention, is that my entire family are Buddhist. I am the only Christian in my family. Um, so, and I'm going to have to explain how I became a Christian. So... When I was 14 years old, um, I get a phone call from my brother. He said, Taylor, do you remember Ronnie? I was like, yeah. He's like, he wants to invite you to his church. And before then, I thought Christians were hypocrites, liars, cheaters, stealers, no good. Um, but for some, for some reason, I wanted to go. And I went. And I fell in love with God. In that moment, I realized God was what I was missing in my life. And so I was excited. I was thrilled that I knew God now. And so I went home, and I told my mom, in lack of better terms, things really went downhill from there. You see, when my brother was in high school, his senior year, he had my nephew Jacob with a girl he went to church with. And because of that, his life was turned upside down. And my mom associates my brother going to church and getting a girl pregnant with Christianity. Does that make sense, everybody? And she associates my brother getting a girl pregnant with the church. So because of that, she was not happy, to say the least, that I was going to church. That night, she said some awful things to me. She said I was a failure. I was never going to amount to anything. I was no good. I was letting down my family. And hearing that at 14 from your mom was pretty hurtful. So I was alienated from my own family, and I didn't know where to turn. So I turned to my friends at school, and I just did whatever they did. And of course, they began to party and drink and fool around with girls. So I began to party and drink and fool around the girls because that's how I felt love. That was my community. And I did that for about two years, my freshman and sophomore year of high school. And so on Wednesday nights, Sunday mornings, I was this perfect Christian boy. I answered every question. I always raised my hand to pray. But at nights, I would go out and be a total hypocrite. Until my, I was 16 years old, my junior year of high school. And I came home, and my mom and I got into it. We were yelling and fighting. And she said, Taylor, I don't even know if I have a son anymore. You are letting down your family's name, and you're dishonoring your dad, which is hurtful for me because my dad and I were so close. So I remember going up to my room, closing the door, getting on my hands and knees and crying. I'm like, God, I hate you. I hate you so much for doing this to me and putting all this pain in my life. Why would you take my dad away from me and call me to be a Christian? And I'm facing all this stuff at 16 without any help, without any support. The only support I had is gone now. And in that moment, God said, Taylor, I took your dad away from you so you can meet me. I closed the big door in your life and opened up the biggest one ever so you can meet me. Taylor, I took your earthly father away from you so you can meet your heavenly father. So like I said, on April 12, 2002, three things happened to me. One, my dad died. Two, I met the enemy for the first time. And three, I met Jesus Christ for the first time through Ronnie. And it all clicked. It all made sense that day. 
And so later that summer, I got baptized. I began to look at Christian universities, and I ended up at Lipscomb. And through a series of connections, I ended up here at Highland this summer. And not going to lie, coming in, I was pretty scared. I was nervous. I was hesitant because I was scared I was going to feel alienated again because that's how I felt my entire life. But I got here, and something different happened. This church, this family opened me up with love and showed me so much grace and just loved me. And the biggest sign of love I've ever received was from here. And yes, I've had people donate money for me to go on mission trips and pray for me, but the biggest sign of love I've ever received was when a mom asked me after camp, she said, Taylor, I want you to come over to my house, bring your laundry, I'm going to cook you dinner, and you're going to swim in my pool. And you may be thinking, why would that matter so much to a 21-year-old guy, boy, whatever you want to call me? Because, one, because I live with Brett Gooch and I don't eat. Two, um, because... I've never received that kind of love before, that simple love that someone would cook dinner for me and offer to do my dirty laundry after camp. That was love for me. That was community. That was family. And in that moment, I realized that God was showing me love through this church and showing me community, and they remembered me through my pain. So Highland, thank you for letting God work through you to impact my life because this is a summer I'll never forget, and so I want to thank you for that. Y'all are so awesome and incredible, and I love you all so much. So as I close out, can we please stand and sing? The 